watching this video. You know, I was really, really hoping that I would be able to speak to you in person today, but that was not to be. You know, as uh, someone who likes to communicate in a more conversational style, the lack of people here is a little bit off-putting. There's this cold, staring eye of the camera, and it is a very poor substitute for your smiling faces, believe me. You know, if I ever needed any proof that I was not cut out for broadcasting, this is it. It's, it is a little weird. Anyway, I miss you all, and I certainly hope and pray that you're all staying safe and staying healthy. Strange times are upon us. In the time between uh, when I had started writing this message and the recording time today, uh, the situation in our nation has become even more dire. Uh, protests have turned violent. There's riots in major cities, several major cities. And as, possible, as impossible as it seems, people have become even more divided. Um, you know, I've yet to read anywhere and from anyone uh, who said that they saw this coming. But I do know of someone who was not the least bit surprised. God knew that this was going to happen. And in his permissive will, he has allowed it to happen. As a believer, that is a comfort to me. It is a comfort to know that there is never, ever going to be anything that will happen in my life that is going to surprise my God. God is in all of this. This morning, I'm going to pull from a very familiar verse from the book of Romans. Now, the book of Romans is one of the 13 letters that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, that have been included in our Christian Bible. They're found in what we call the New Testament, which is that portion of the Bible that was written after Jesus had spent his time here on earth. Written about 57 to 58 A.D., the book of Romans is an absolute masterpiece. It is a carefully constructed treatise on Christian theology that explains God's plan for salvation through Jesus Christ. Within its pages, you find very easy-to-understand phrases like no condemnation and peace with God right alongside more elevated concepts like substitutionary atonement, propitiation, justification, very deep and very heady concepts. Now, because of this sharp duality, the book of Romans has often been compared to a lake, a lake that is shallow enough that even a child can wade in it, but deep enough to cover an elephant. In 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther 
in his struggle to understand the book of Romans, started the Protestant Reformation. In doing so, he not only changed the Christian world, but all of Western civilization. All of that from that one little book. You know, when I say God is in all of this, I'm taking my cue from this morning's verse, which is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it reads as follows. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We are going to do a phrase-by-phrase breakdown of this verse this morning. I told you that Romans was a masterpiece. Well, as we're going to see this morning, even the smallest verse of that book is equally as deep and rich with the word of God. Well, we're going to begin at the beginning, which is a pretty good place to start. We know. The word we is very important. Paul didn't say I or they. He said we know. He's not saying that only he knows, or he would have said I. And he's not saying that it is secret knowledge that only a few people over there have. So he didn't use the word they. He said we. And he also said we know. He didn't say we think or we hope. It's not speculation. It's not conjecture. It's not wishful thinking. It is an ironclad certainty from a God who has revealed himself to us through creation, through the scriptures, through our own conscience, and through his son, Jesus Christ. We know that for those who love God, those who love God, that's the next phrase we're going to take a look at. Anyone who truly loves God should be easy to identify. You should be able to tell who they are by what they say, what kind of attitude they have, and how they act toward their fellow man. When we talk about their words, what what they say, we have to consider that what we say, how we say it, when we say it, and who we say it to as being an indicator of our position to God. What, What role does God play in our life? You know, I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the concept of the spiritual filter that all of us should apply to our speech before we, before we say a word. We begin by asking ourselves the following questions. We say, we ask ourselves whether, is it necessary? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Is it empathetic? And would I be embarrassed to have it said about me? You know, I found a lot of what I think about saying doesn't even make it past that first question. Now, if you've been watching uh, Pastor Rogers' messages online, then you have heard in the book of James and what he has to say about our speech. But here are a couple more verses that deal with that subject. In Psalm 19, we read, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In Colossians 4.6, we will read, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In Matthew 15.11, 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. What we say is important to God, and it should be just as important to us. How many of you have heard the phrase, uh, it's not what you say, it's how you say it? I heard it a lot when I was a kid. I uh, had a sarcastic tone that I would employ once in a while, and it would instantly have my mom go from just James to James Edward. Uh, I would say, well, what? I, I didn't say anything wrong. And I would hear that phrase. It's not what you said, James Edward. It's how you said it. What colors how we say things is our attitude. If my head and my heart are in a dark place, there's a very good chance that my words are not going to be all that cheery and helpful and edifying. Now, on paper, they might look just fine. But when I choose to inflect them with certain tones of voice or facial gestures or volume changes, that's a whole different story, right? For example, in response to a question, I might answer, that's great. Or I could say, oh, that's great. Same words, but with a different attitude implied. Now, it's not always easy to maintain a good attitude, and recent events have not made things any better at all. You know, many of us are facing, facing challenges that have completely blindsided us. We may feel hurt and, dis- and discouraged, and, and these feelings, if left unchecked, will poison our interactions with others and leave us feeling even worse. When our heart starts to drift, and it's time for a spiritual attitude adjustment, we need to redirect our hearts and our minds toward God's truth. I have a couple of good scriptures to pray when we feel ourselves in need of an adjustment. From the Psalm 63, we read, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. From Psalm 51, we can pray, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In Romans 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Now finally, I would like to share with you my absolute favorite attitude adjustment scripture. And this comes from Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. It reads as follows. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In those verses, the Apostle Paul is offering his friends an alternate thinking strategy, a simple way for them to fix their hearts and minds on something that is worthy of their attentions. If our minds are focused on higher things, our attitudes are going to follow. 
we have to be careful of how we act. It's one thing to have the right words and the good attitude. However, if it's not displayed in our actions, then it's all for naught. We have all hopefully heard the phrase, faith without works is dead. And if you haven't, I urge you to go back and listen to Pastor Roger's sermon from April 26th. This phrase comes from the book of James, and it accurately describes the behavioral changes that should accompany the turning of one's heart to the Lord. In John 13, verse 35, we read, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And lastly, from Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All things work together. The phrase all things, what are the implications here? Is it all things? Is it really all things? It's not just like some things or a few things or just the important stuff? No. The scripture could not be any clearer. God works in all things. Now, I love the way that one of my favorite Christian authors, uh, John Piper, explains this phrase. He says this, When it comes to the architecture of promises, there are not any bigger buildings than Romans 8.28. The structure is absolutely staggering in its size. It is massive. The infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God pledges to make everything beneficial to his people. Not just nice things, but horrible things. Things like tribulation and distress and peril and slaughter. What brick would you lay on top of this skyscraper promise to make it taller? All things means all things. Our God is in all of this, my friends. He designed it all, he created it all, and he reigns over it all. Our God is a sovereign God with absolute control over every aspect of his creation. You know, it naturally follows that a sovereign God would have to have some very, very amazing attributes. He would have to be omniscient, meaning that he would know everything that could be known. He would have to be omnipotent, meaning that he would have all power. And he would also be omnipresent. In other words, he would be everywhere all of the time. Now, I was really drawn to the way that Tony Evans explains these concepts and how they work together. Tony Evans is the founder and the senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Evans explains how these incredible attributes work in tandem. God knows what needs to be done, 
That's omniscience. God has the power to do it. That's being omnipotent. God is always wherever he needs to be to do whatever needs to be done. That's omnipresence. God causes all things to work together. Work together. When I was studying for this message, in one of the commentaries, the author posed the question, does God use good and evil together? Can he mix them together to accomplish his purposes? Well, the answer, of course, is a very, very, very strong no. Light and darkness have no fellowship whatsoever. Darkness can't even comprehend the light, and it cannot even exist in its presence. So, it begs the question, if good and evil can't even be in the same room as each other, how can God use all things together? Perhaps this little story might help us understand better. Early on in our shelter-in-place lockdown, I had decided I was going to bake some bread. And I'll tell you, if I can ever find yeast on the shelves again, I'm going to make some more bread. Anyway, that was just a, a freebie. Early on in the lockdown, I decided to bake some bread. Well, the recipe called for buttermilk. And I had no buttermilk. So I frantically Googled, substitute for buttermilk. And I found that by adding lemon juice to milk, you could create your own buttermilk. Well, I, I added the lemon juice to the milk. I effectively ruined the milk. However, in the big picture, which is my recipe for bread, it functioned exactly as needed, and the bread turned out pretty good. Now, sin and evil will ruin us. It is the lemon juice that will make our lives seem worthless and without purpose. However, in the hands of a mighty God, there is no one or no thing that is worthless. The redemptive power of God is sufficient to take our past mistakes or the mistakes of others and use them for the glory of his kingdom. Most of you uh, have heard my story, and you know that I am a living example of that miraculous ability. What I'm getting at here, people, is the idea that something may not be good, but that something may be used for good. Something may not be good, but it can be used for good. All things work together for good. What is good? This is a commonly misunderstood word, even by some who would call themselves believers. It does not mean happiness, physical comfort, material abundance, or financial security. I think we all know this already. Is there any of us here this morning whose life became perfect and trouble-free when they accepted Jesus? Scripture actually indicates that the opposite would be far more likely. Uh, consider what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
And again, in Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you who has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And lastly, the words of our Lord himself from Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound good at all, does it? Well, there's a good reason for that. The good that Paul is speaking of here, it refers to God's good. What is good in the eyes of the Lord? Our spiritual condition is what is most important to God. It's what matters most to him. How are we doing on our journey in becoming more like his son? If we have accepted Christ, we have a new standard. The bar has been raised. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We are new creations, but we are far from perfect creations. Thankfully, we're not just given a new standard. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're given a new potential. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The old saying that God loves us just the way we are, but does not want us to stay that way, is more than just a clever little bumper sticker slogan. It is the absolute truth. A very wise teacher of mine years ago told me that God allows everything into our life for one of two purposes. Either to bring us into relationship with himself or, if we already know him, to make us more like Jesus. Those who are called according to his purpose. Who has been called? And what is his purpose? Not everyone who hears the gospel message has been called. It is not simply a matter of hearing. If that were the case, everyone who had ever listened to a Billy Graham altar call would be saved. And we know that that's simply not the case at all. Paul preached Christ to everyone, both Jew and Gentile alike. To many, Christ was a stumbling block, and they were unable to climb over it. However, there were some who were granted the gift of faith, a gift that allowed them to believe Paul, to believe his message that Jesus was the wisdom and the power of God. Their hearts and minds would become changed and they would embrace Jesus in faith and in love. If you have heard the gospel message and accepted Jesus, then you have been called. If you have turned toward God in repentance and faith and obedience, then you have been called. And you've been called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? God's purpose, as demonstrated in the overarching theme of the Bible, is the furtherance of his glory through the redemption of his people. 
He seeks to gather us to himself in the hope that we may share eternity with him. Now I know for one little verse that is a lot to take in. There's a a complete sermon, you know, waiting to be preached in every one of those phrases that I noted. You know, remember what I said in the introduction about the book of Romans. It's a lake, and it's shallow, but it's also very, very deep. Times are strange indeed. We are all facing situations that we honestly never saw coming. And I believe that a lot of us are asking questions that we've never asked before. Many of us may have thoughts swirling around in our heads that are frightening and disturbing. Uncertainty will do that. That feeling of crossing a river and realizing that we don't know where the rocks are. We don't know where to put our feet. We may have lost a job or have had our hours significantly reduced. For some of us, there's been the heartache of losing a loved one and not being able to properly grieve with our families. I know that we have a lot of grandparents out there who are really missing those grandbabies right about now. For myself, I will never take my Sunday hugs for granted again. We may be feeling the loss of so many familiar pastimes that are simply unavailable to us right now. There are probably some of us that miss having time to ourselves. We may now find ourselves trying to be a teacher or a daycare worker or a primary caregiver. A whole lot of us are trying to work from home. Has anyone else been at a Zoom meeting and and heard a barking dog or a crying kid in the background? Or have you seen a cat walk across the computer keyboard right in front of the camera? All of these new situations can be very, very stressful. And to make things worse, we may not be able to participate in the activities that we once found relaxing and restful. Activities that we formerly relied upon to keep our lives in balance. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty, isolation. These feelings can take over our thoughts and steal our joy if we let them. We need to set our minds on higher things, whatever is true, whatever is right. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is there anything more true or more right than that? I'd like to take a look at a few examples from Scripture where where God was able to work all things toward the good. Well, first, there's that story of Joseph. You remember Joseph? He got sold into slavery by his own brothers, but he ended up being used as an instrument of God's grace and mercy. He becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and becomes responsible for saving thousands of lives, including the very same people who had tried to destroy him. Joseph's story is the source for the definitive quote on God's redemptive ability. 
Joseph, when speaking to his brothers, says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. How about the Apostle Paul? He was not always the shining hero of the faith that we know and love today. When we first meet him, his name is Saul, and he is on his way to persecute Christians. As he is traveling on the road, heading towards Damascus with murderous intent, he encounters the risen Lord. As a result of that meeting, he changes his name, he becomes a missionary, and he eventually writes around a quarter of the New Testament. And then lastly, we have to look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not even a Hollywood director would have come up with a twist ending like this one. God uses the death of his only son to save the world. After a day on which the sun literally stopped shining, followed by a day of what I can only imagine was heartbreaking grief and uncertainty, there came the most glorious morning. Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and was at his Father's side. Unspeakable tragedy had been transformed into the gift of eternal salvation for you and I. A few years ago, I had the good fortune to meet Randall Smith. Now, his name is probably unknown to most, if not all of you, but he's a pretty big name among guitar players. He is the genius behind the uh, Mesa Boogie amplifier. That's the, the amplifier that I use here on Sunday mornings and hope to be using soon again. Anyway, as, as we were talking, the conversation turned to the subject of the amplifier that I personally own. And as Randy started to discuss the details of the amp and, and how to achieve the results by having the settings modified, and I, I was spellbound absolutely mesmerized. See, this, this just wasn't some guy at, at Guitar Showcase telling me how to set up my amp. This was the dude that designed it and built it. I mean, what, what better source of information and instruction could there be? Our God is in all of this, my friends. He designed it all, he created it all, and he reigns Sovereign over it all. In the words of an old hymn, This is my father's world. Should my heart be ever sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens sing. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Not only do we have access to the designer and the creator of our world, but we also have the instruction manual that he has provided us. Our holy Bible. When we open up that book, and read that God is working all things together for our good, then I believe that we should take him at his word. In closing, I want to leave you all with this. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong 
with feeling afraid or nervous or uncertain. I mean, that is part of being a human being. The problem starts when we stay that way for too long. We all need to lean into the Lord to seek and find the comfort and the peace that he so readily offers us. Our God is in all of this. I pray that we all find peace in the Lord. Because without peace in our own hearts, it is impossible for us to be a comfort to others. And next week, Lord willing, uh, we will talk about how we can share that peace we have with our brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in our brokenness, anxious, afraid, uncertain, and undeserving. We beseech you, O Lord, to heal our hearts and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray for a nation divided, for a people who have turned away from you, seeking answers that come not from heavenly wisdom, but from prideful attitudes and worldly desires. We pray for our leaders in all levels of government, that they guide us not through selfish ambition, but from a place of humble stewardship. I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Blossom Valley Bible Church, for their safety, for their health, and for their joy in you. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he be gracious unto you. May he turn his face to shine upon you and grant you all peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Take care. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay joyful. I love you all, and I hope to see you soon. Good afternoon, everybody. At this time, we're going to celebrate communion, remembering what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary's cross some 2,000 years ago, when the righteous died on behalf of the unrighteous, you and I, making it possible for us to have eternal life and have a relationship with the living God Writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. This small wafer represents the body of Christ. We look back at what he did for us on Calvary's cross when Christ took the sins of the whole world upon himself. And God makes an offer in the Bible. Whosoever wants life in Christ, can have it. If by faith, they'll turn to Christ and entrust their lives to him. 
Remembering what Christ did for us on Calvary's cross, let's partake of the bread together. The Apostle Paul goes on to write, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The juice represents the blood of Christ. Christ gave not only his body, he gave his blood. He gave his totality on our behalf. Remembering what our Savior did for us, let's partake of the cup together. And the Apostle Paul closes with, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Bible says clearly that Christ will one day come back for his church. The dead in Christ and living saints. He'll receive us to himself and off we'll go to the Father's house. The offer is there for whosoever is willing to take this free gift. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what our Savior did on Calvary's cross. We thank you because of our Savior, we now have eternal life. Those of us who have entrusted our lives to you. Our sins have been forgiven. We become a part of a body of believers. We've been gifted with spiritual gifts. And on and on it goes. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love on our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.